You're listening to Tom Fitton's weekly update here on JW TalkNet. Hi, everyone. Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton here with our weekly update here on social media. Thanks for joining in this week. I'm glad to be back this week. I was under the weather last week, so there's a lot to catch up on. Major spygate revelations confirming the Obama gang was spying on Donald Trump. Uh, And of course, the response from the left and the Democrats on the Hill who have been caught up in this Spygate scandal is to attack the Attorney General of the United States with abusive contempt smears. So I'll give you my feedback on what's happening there. On top of that, Judicial Watch has several new deep state lawsuits designed to pry loose information about this spy, the, the, the Spygate scandal and the deep state assault on President Trump. Uh, so some major updates there. And then we have new revelations detailing Obama White House uh, involvement, to put it charitably, in the Clinton email cover-up. This is a result of court-ordered discovery granted to Judicial Watch by a federal court judge, and we're getting the results. So as everyone talks about the Clinton email scandal, Judicial Watch is the only one doing the heavy lifting, trying to get the information out there through court process. But first up, I want to talk about this Spygate scandal. Because even if you watch Fox, they haven't talked about it enough. Uh, and certainly much of the major media hasn't talked about it amount, uh, enough, which is the startling confirmation and major confirmation by the New York Times last week that the FBI under Barack Obama and James Comey indeed was spying on President Trump's campaign. Uh, this is from the New York Times dated May 2nd, 2019. The conversation at a London bar in September 2016 took a strange turn when the women sit, woman sitting across from the George Papadopoulos, a Trump campaign advisor, asked a direct question. Was the Trump campaign working with Russia? The woman had set up the meeting to discuss foreign policy issues, but she actually was a government investigator posing as a research assistant, according to people familiar with the operation. The FBI sent her to London as part of the counterintelligence inquiry opened that summer to better understand the Trump campaign's link to Russia. So this woman, who called herself Azra Turk, was detailed by the FBI government investigator. I don't say she was an FBI agent. I suspect she probably worked for another government agency like the CIA to work with Stephen Halper, who was an FBI uh, informant to spy on George Papadopoulos and try to entrap him because the emails, it's pretty clear, the text messages and communications this woman subsequently had with uh, Papadopoulos uh, was more than about asking about whether or not he knew Clinton emails were going to be leaked by the Russians. Uh, they involved come-ons and such, obviously uh, trying to ensnare him in more than just a uh, informational relationship. But uh, The New York Times admitting, and the headline is just classic, FBI sent investigator posing as assistant to meet with Trump aide in 2016. Well, you know, I could have written that headline a lot more succinctly. FBI spied on Trump campaign. So this gentleman, Stephen Halper, who had a contract with the Defense Department, was working out of London, not only met with Papadopoulos, but as the New York Times uh, reconfirms, also met here in the United States of America with other campaign officials, including Carter Page, and then Sam Clovis, who was not a junior uh, campaign aide like Page and um, uh, Papadopoulos were. They were kind of, quote, advisors who were linked to the campaign. And uh, uh, Clovis was a senior guy on the campaign. 
So you had the FBI targeting the Trump campaign with an unprecedented spying operation. Here, not only abroad, but here in the United States, which raises substantial legal concerns, because generally speaking, the FBI and the CIA are not allowed to spy on domestic political operations. That's why they were focused on trying to get Papadopoulos overseas, because their abilities to spy on Americans are greatly uh, uh, eased uh, overseas. They don't have to jump through a lot of hoops to have that done. And on top of that, Halper became so close to the Trump people as a result of his spy operation on behalf of the FBI, he was invited to the White House in 2017. So yes, the FBI was not only spying on the Trump campaign, they were spying on the Trump White House. Now, according to this story that was written, obviously, in, um, uh, to get ahead of the IG report, that's forthcoming from the Department of Justice IG uh, Inspector General that's probably going to talk about these issues. Uh, th- this, this report confirms that uh, the president, Trump, was right. The, Trump, the Obama people were spying on him. Now, of course, Judicial Watch has been trying to investigate what Halper was up to, Stephen Halper, the FBI spy. And so what's incredible is you still have people arguing over whether it was spying. Uh, the, um, the corrupt James Comey, the FBI director rightly fired by President Trump, was on TV this week at CNN saying it was perfectly normal for the FBI to spy on the presidential campaign. Well, he knows it's not perfectly normal. But again, it's an admission that he knew because he didn't want to call it spying. But I don't know what else you would call a counterintelligence operation against U.S. targets abroad, using evidently a CIA asset to do it. Of course it's spying. You know, when the FBI investigates you, two FBI agents show up, they knock on the door, and they say, we want to talk to you. That's an investigation. When the FBI spies on you, or when the CIA spies on you, they use confidential informants, they use cutouts, to have meetings with you, and they don't disclose their relationship with the FBI or CIA or other intelligence uh, uh, agencies. That's spying. And the fact that they are hiding from the word spying shows you that they know what they did was wrong. So we have these major revelations confirming, and by the way, you don't spy on a presidential campaign at the junior level. You have to get it approved. And, of course, Comey admits, essentially, that he was involved in this. And, of course, other text messages show that the White House wanted to know everything. So I guarantee you that Barack Obama approved of and was briefed on this spy operation targeting President Trump. Obama knew. We already knew he was involved in the uh, assembling of the... uh, Uh, the dossier targeting President Trump. So when people say they want to talk, they want to, uh, well, for instance, the Intelligence Committee of the Senate is harassing Donald Trump Jr. with another subpoena, they need to be talking to President Trump. They need to be talking to senior people in the Trump White House about what they knew and when about the spy operation against President Trump excuse me, in the Obama White House about what they knew and when about the spy operation against President Obama, against President Trump. Forgive me, I'm getting my presidents screwed up. But it's pretty clear the Obama White House 
knew or should have known about the spy operation, unprecedented targeting President Obama, uh, then, then candidate Trump. And let's go through all the agencies involved in targeting President, uh, then candidate Trump. State Department, CIA, FBI, DOJ, NSA, you can bet the Office of Director of National Intelligence, uh, certainly National Security Council, Susan Rice confirmed she was involved, and the Obama White House. It was all hands on deck targeting President Trump. So we have all these extraordinary revelations confirming uh, Spygate. So the, what, are the, what do the Democrats on the House do? They file a vote, uh, they, they vote against um, Attorney General Barr, a contempt resolution out of the House Judiciary Committee. An extraordinary step. They're essentially saying Attorney General Barr should go to jail over his refusal to turn over millions of pages of documents, potentially, at the drop of a hat, and just a few lines of text in the Mueller report. Text that he can't lawfully turn over, absent legislation by Congress, because a grand jury protected material, uh, the Attorney General doesn't have the discretion to turn it over nor does the House have the ability to override federal law to look at material it doesn't have a right to under the law. Now, to be clear, I understand that Congress and the executive branch get into fights. And just because it's Democrats asking for the records, it doesn't mean that the request is not well-founded. But I do know enough about the political back and forth in these legislative uh, requests uh, or these oversight requests to know it takes time to work through them. So you have the report issued, and then to demand immediately that the report be released, including all the background material over it, and then, then, and then put someone in a contempt situation uh, within weeks of the initial request is an abuse of power. It's an outright abuse of power. And it's a part of a series of abuses of power that began with Spygate, as I point out, in 2016, maybe 2015, DOJ, FBI tasked to target uh, then-candidate Trump, continued through the coup discussions at the top levels of the Department of Justice, continued through the Mueller special counsel operation with all the abuses of that out-of-control investigation, pre-dawn raids, guns drawn, calls to CNN, it looks like, or somehow CNN is alerted to one of the raids, specifically on Roger Stone, raids on the president's lawyers, charging people with uh, crimes that hadn't been charged in many, many years here in Washington, D.C., namely the Foreign Agents Registration Act, basically an outrageous prosecutorial effort to try to destroy President Trump. And then on top of that, they issue a smear report that presumes the president is guilty, and then they say they decline to exonerate him. Abuse of power piled on the top of abuse of power. And now the baton's been passed along to the Justice Department, I mean to the Democrats on the Hill, who are now abusing the powers entrusted to them by the American people to distract from the fact that their party has been caught in illegal spying targeting President Trump. It began in the, during the campaign, and as the New York Times confirms, it continued during the Trump presidency. Yes, the FBI was spying on President Trump. Not candidate Trump, but President Trump as well. Halper went to the White House. He supposedly wasn't given any instruction, but he wasn't there 
as an American citizen trying to help the president. He was there as an asset of the FBI. So this abuse of power by uh, Jerry Nadler at the Department of Justice, uh, the Judiciary Committee chairman, targeting the Attorney General, is rich. Because as far as I'm concerned, the Attorney General needs to be investigating some of the members of Congress who are seeking to hold him in contempt. Because if he's going to be doing an honest and thorough investigation, because he says he wants to investigate Spygate, I hope he actually does something substantial there. That's why they're angry at him. He blew up the Mueller report by exposing the basic outlines of it, that it was a um, found no collusion and there was no evidence, legal or factually, of obstruction. So the left was furious that he got ahead of them on spinning that narrative. And even worse, he wants to criminally investigate the the coup cabal against President Trump. And that would necessarily involve investigating members of Congress. You heard me right. It would mean investigating members of Congress because they were involved in the conspiracy to target President Trump and then candidate Trump. So this is not, uh, talk about conflicts of interest. Some of these members should be recused from targeting uh, uh, voting on contempt in the uh, Attorney General Barr's ish, uh, debate. So I don't know if they're going to do a full-on contempt effort in the House. It was voted at a committee. But I'm just highlighting that this is not about President, uh, about Attorney General Barr. This is about protecting themselves, the Democrats, from scrutiny. And what better way to hamper scrutiny into your criminal conduct or potential criminal conduct, let's be, let's be nice, than to suggest the Attorney General of the United States did something wrong, when in fact it's just your typical fight between the executive branch and the legislative branch on documents. That being said, the Justice Department has been a black hole in terms of document production of Congress for years, and it didn't begin with the Attorney General. Now, of course, when the Republicans were seeking Spygate documents, you had uh, the Democrats opposing them, saying, oh, they're getting into things, they're trying to interfere with the Mueller investigation, they're trying to let information out that should be protected as classified. If I were the president, and, and you know, to a degree he can cooperate, he should cooperate with Congress. I mean, no use picking a fight when you don't need to pick a fight. But when the uh, subpoenas are abusive and harassing, redundant, and impede unlawfully or unconstitutionally on the president's prerogatives and powers, he should fight back. You can see uh, they're trying to abuse the powers entrusted to them by the American people by trying to use a law requiring tax information be given to certain members of Congress to try to get 10 years or so of the president's tax returns. I think it's six years. Well, it doesn't matter because one year is too many if you're doing it for illicit purposes. And thankfully, the Treasury Secretary said, no, you're not doing this legitimately. So now they're subpoenaing the president's tax records. So this abuse and harassment will continue. And obviously, that's one of the fights I think the president should stand fast on. I don't know what attorney, uh, what uh, the president's son's going to do with this ridiculous subpoena out of the Senate Intelligence Committee that is nominally run by, Democrat, by Republicans but is effectively run by Democrats. 
Whenever you hear bipartisanship, that usually means the left is running the show. So Senator Burr, uh, the Republican and the chairman of the committee, likes to promote the fact that his committee investigation has been bipartisan. Well, that means he's turned over the investigation to his Democratic ranking member colleague, Senator Mark Warner, the Democrat from Virginia. So we have this massive Mueller report showing no collusion, recommending no criminal charges against anyone involved in the Trump campaign, and the the Republican-controlled Senate follows up with a subpoena of the president's son. I mean, if you think the swamp is only populated by Democrats, you're sorely mistaken. Park rangers, by the, park rangers for the Swamp are in both political parties. So uh, I just wanted to give you my feedback on that. Uh, but in the meantime, Judicial Watch keeps on doing our own investigations. As I've pointed out to you before, I went through each of the 43 lawsuits as of April 1st that we had filed to investigate the deep state. And since then, we've filed more lawsuits. So as best I can tell, we're up to nearly 50 lawsuits that Judicial Watch has filed against uh, the deep state to figure out uh, the conspiracy against President Trump and the rule of law in our republic. Because it's not about President Trump. Obviously, it is personally, because they don't think President Trump should be protected by the rule of law. But it's about our republic, whether or not our government officials are going to rise or fall based on abuses of power and law by bureaucrats and appointees and some elected other officials. And they're willing to tear through the Constitution to get their political enemies. That's the issue here. The great, that is the greatest corruption scandal of all time. You see this with the FBI spying on President Trump, the Trump campaign, well, and President Trump. But it's the willingness to cast aside the rule of law to target the President of the United States. It's really unprecedented in American history. So people have had, so I say we've got 50 lawsuits, uh, 10 of which at least actually are focused on the Mueller investigation. So people say, let's investigate the investigators. Let's not forget that the Mueller investigation is an investigation that needs investigating. And to that end, we filed a lawsuit against the FBI, against, uh, for records of a meeting set up by Andrew Weissman, the number two under Mueller. Anti-Trump activist is uncovered by Judicial Watch. Pro-Hillary Clinton activist as uncovered by the Wall Street Journal. You had the senior Justice Department official. I think he was top guy in the criminal division at the time. He went to Hillary Clinton's election night party in New York. He sent an email praising Sally Yates, the anti-Trump acting attorney general, the Obama holdover, praising her for thwarting the president's initial travel ban, or trying to, by refusing to defend it in court, a lawless and unethical act. This man was number two in Mueller's operation. He was also involved in this anti-Trump effort even before he was part of Mueller's operation. He met up uh, with AP reporters to talk about... uh, Paul Manafort, he became known, quote, as the architect of the case against Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort. Paul Manafort, he probably committed tax fraud and did other things inappropriately. Whether he's guilty or innocent, 
he would never have been faced with criminal charges but for his relationship to President Trump. The federal charges against him were vindictive, had nothing to do with the rule of law. Now, I understand they, require, they resulted in his admitting to violations of the rule of law. But that doesn't mean they were brought to vindicate the rule of law. They were brought to try to destroy Donald Trump by trying to get his campaign chairman to turn. With a, a piling on of federal charges that would have seen him go to jail for dozens of years. So part of that effort included collaborating with the Associated Press, the AP, to get dirt on Manafort. And there was an infamous meeting that took place in um, April 11th, 2017. This is before Mueller was appointed, just over a month before Mueller was appointed, where DOJ and FBI officials, this meeting arranged by Weissman, met with four Associated Press reporters. And at, the hear- and at a hearing... A, uh, in June 2017, a special agent testified the FBI may have conducted the May, a May 17, uh, 2017 raid of a storage rocker that Manafort was renting based on a tip from the AP reporters. He said the purpose of the meeting was for the DOJ and the FBI to obtain information from the AP. I think it's very interesting to know that Andrew Weissman and others at the DOJ and the FBI were colluding with the media to try to get President Trump's former top campaign official. And rather than comply with the Freedom of Information Act about this meeting, to give us documents about this meeting, they've been holding up the records. So this DOJ, the FBI and DOJ, it's kind of complicated. When you want records from the FBI, you have to sue its parent agency, in this case, the Department of Justice are refusing to comply with FOIA law. If you refuse to comply with the law, we know what happens to you, right? But DOJ regularly refuses to comply with law, and we have to sue them in federal court. And then still we have to wait. But there are results that occur as a result of our getting documents out. There is a story out uh, last week in The Hill, reported by John Solomon, that Mark Meadows, the Republican head of the House Freedom Caucus, a, uh, uh, one of the uh, tough investigators on the House side investigating Spygate, he had Devin Nunes, Jim Jordan, Mark Gates, uh, obviously Mark Meadows. He referred to the Justice Department uh, a potential prosecution issue related to Nellie Orr, who testified she hadn't talked to anyone about Fusion GPS, essentially. But Judicial Watch documents uncovered that she was in regular communication with the Department of Justice about Russia and uh, Fusion GPS. Judicial Watch's documents shows that Nellie Orr married the Bruce Orr, the Department of Justice official. Nellie worked for Fusion GPS, was in regular communication with Justice Department officials on Russia gate, not only related, uh, issues not only related to Trump, but to others. So much so, she may as well have had a desk at the Justice Department. So what happened is Meadows looks at our documents, compares and contrasts her regular communications with the Justice Department about Russia with her denials that she had communications with anyone about this issue and said, Justice Department, you need to investigate her. 
But Judicial Watch hasn't stopped. So there's a criminal referral as a result of Judicial Watch getting documents out and educating Congress about what went on. Judicial Watch found, according to new documents, I think it was part of the same lawsuit that found the initial batch of documents, that Bruce Orr had ethics concerns, you think? Tied to his Russia testimony. He wrote an ethics lawyer in the Hill, on, on, in the judiciary, excuse me, in the Justice Department. Thank you for taking the time to chat with me this morning. As requested, here's a short description of my question. As you may have heard, the Senate Intelligence Committee and House Intelligence Committee requested to interview me in connection with their investigations of possible Russian interference in the 2016 elections. Shortly after receiving the Senate request, a series of stories broke in the press about my alleged connections to Chris Steele. Alleged he had 60 communications with the guy. How many people do you have 60 communications with? Are those connections alleged? The author of the so-called Trump dossier, and then something's redacted. My question has to do with redacted. Are there any guidelines for redacted in order to satisfy any possible ethics concerns? And then the response is, can you obtain redacted? So we don't know what went on, but obviously there were ethics issues there. I mean, this guy Orr, who I, as I may have told you before, we knew a little bit from prior legal work we had done for another Judicial Watch client. Christopher Steele is paid by the FBI through much of 2016. Judicial Watch and Judicial Watch alone uncovered that there were 11 payments to Christopher Steele by the FBI at the same time the uh, Clinton DNC operation is paying Christopher Steele to dig up dirt on President then-candidate Trump. Uh, but he starts leaking. The FBI gets wind of this leak, and even that was too much for them, so they cut him off as a confidential human source. But instead, they used Bruce Orr, whose wife worked with Christopher Steele through Fusion GPS, to communicate with Steele and get information back from them. So they cut him off as a source, but then improperly used Bruce Orr, who was conflicted up the wazoo, to get the uh, material from Christopher Steele. And he has a series of communications, and he at one point, and this is one of the documents, or a series of documents the president should declassify or release as quickly as he can, he's interviewed 11 or 12 times by the FBI as a witness because of the communications with Steele. When did it occur to Bruce Orr that maybe, maybe the fifth time he was interviewed by the FBI that maybe I shouldn't be a witness in this investigation given my conflicts of interest? I would hope he would have ethics concerns. But of course, it only occurred to him that there were ethics issues. And my guess is it was a representation issues, legally, legal representation issues about which lawyers he could use. Only because he was having to testify about this misconduct as a Senate. No problem having his wife essentially run his um, organized crime operation or become an employee or a volunteer for his organized crime operation out of the Justice Department while working for the Hillary Clinton camp. Unbelievable. But again, it's Judicial Watch filing the lawsuits and getting results. Bruce Orr again, a new lawsuit. We sued the Justice Department between, uh, for communications between anti-Trumper Ben uh, Peter Strzok and Bruce Orr. 
We asked for the communications that said they're none, but it turns out they were in communication. So you can bet there were meetings, and we can't believe there are no records. We know that Strzok was deeply involved in both running the Hillary email investigation and the FBI uh, Russiagate investigation. It's doubtful that Orr's meetings with Strzok over a matter of national importance happened without a, strap of communica- without a scrap of communication. So we want the documents. Another FOIA lawsuit by Judicial Watch. So as these fraudulent subpoenas had issued against Donald Trump Jr., as the Attorney General of the United States is harassed and smeared by the House Judiciary Committee, threatened with impeachment and removal, Judicial Watch is doing the basic investigations about Spygate, about the real corruption that Congress refuses to grapple with. The media is only, uh, to the degree it reports on it, like the New York Times did it. It's written as a favor for those that leaked it to them from the deep state that's trying to get ahead of the story. I'm talking about the Spygate revelations of uh, the FBI spying on President Trump that was released. And it's only Judicial Watch doing the basic investigations and litigation to get this information. I mean, we're happy to do the work. Don't get me wrong. That's why we're here. But isn't it outrageous that we're the ones doing it? And we're getting results. It's not just talking and complaining. The litigation results in revelations about government misconduct that educates you about the way your government operates and what your government's up to. And to that end, Judicial Watch, of course, had uncovered the Clinton email investigate the Clinton emails. It was Judicial Watch litigation that forced the government to admit, yeah, there are these Clinton emails here that we have been lying to you about and hadn't told the courts, the American people, or Congress about. And the big lawsuit that helped lead to that revelation was over Benghazi. So yes, Benghazi's back. And a federal court was fed up of what went on. And he authorized Judicial Watch uh, late last year, and it's now in the, we're in the middle of it, to conduct discovery into whether Hillary Clinton's email system was set up to avoid this key law, the Freedom of Information Act, whether they were trying to hoodwink the courts, and whether there are other emails that can be looked at as the law requires. And the court also wants to know if there are any links to Benghazi in terms of that being the reason for covering up this information. So we've deposed witness after witness, and we have more witnesses to be deposed. We've been sending out document requests under civil discovery to get these records. And it's not just that, that, that it's just Judicial Watch that is upset about what went on. The court's upset. He called Hillary Clinton's email system one of the gravest modern offenses to government transparency. And he was upset by the State and Justice Department corruption that sought to cover this up. And we've been getting revelation after revelation. The big news is that we just released it today. Judicial Watch. Records obtained in court-ordered discovery reveal Obama White House Tracking FOIA requests for Clinton emails. Obama knew, the Obama White House knew that there was an issue about Clinton emails 
and yet they continued of the cover-up. This is what had happened. There was this left-wing group, the Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, a watchdog group modeled on Judicial Watch, that had asked for Clinton emails, including personal account emails, alias account emails. So this request was noted within the State Department. It was right on the money in terms of targeting Hillary Clinton's email server. And they sat on it, and they kicked it around among the lawyers there. It involved Cheryl Mills, knew about it, Heather Samuelson, White House liaison at the State Department under Hillary Clinton, later became her private lawyer, involved in deleting the emails that Hillary Clinton improperly took from the State Department. By improperly took, I mean stole. She knew about it. They all knew about this request for her emails. So the request occurred in 2012. You know who else knew about this request for her emails? The White House counsel under Barack Obama. These emails were disclosed to us as a result of not FOIA, but discovery, court-ordered discovery. You know, when you're sued and you have to turn over records to the other side, it's that type of discovery. Cheryl Walter, director of the State Department's Office of Information Programs and Services, writes to other officials, White House called, WH called, have we received a FOIA request for crew, from crew on the topic of personal use of email by senior officials? Apparently other agencies have. If we have it, can you give me the details so I can call White House back? I think they would, they'd like it on a quick turnaround. They knew this was coming. In the same email chain, she emails Heather Samuelson, as I say, the White House lawyer. Excuse me, the White House liaison who became Hillary Clinton's private lawyer after she left. Hi, Heather. Copy attached. It was in our significant weekly FOIA report. As a practical matter, given our workload, it won't be processed for some months, so they're just going to stall just as a matter of course. Let me know if there are any particular sensitivities. And then on January 10th, 2013, Walters writes to Samuelson that she is not including personal accounts in the FOIA request search. Hi, Heather, did you ever get any intel, Ray, whether other agencies are doing, Ray, this FOIA request that seeks records about the number of email accounts associated with the secretary? So she wants guidance from Samuelson about what she should do because she's saying, I may talk to the requester about basically trying to uh, get around their request. Samuelson responds, White House counsel was looking into this for me. I will circle back with them now to see if they have any further guidance. That's your smoking gun. The White House was running the FOIA response about whether there were secret Hillary Clinton email accounts. And the response on May 10th, 2013 was a lie. No records responsive to your request were located. They knew exactly what was going on. 
If this doesn't tell you that the Obama White House wasn't orchestrating, certainly they had a lot of help, but they were orchestrating the cover-up on the Clinton emails, I don't know what will. The court wanted answers as to who was behind the government cover-up. Well, we found the answers. The Obama White House Counsel's Office. We've already exposed the FBI, top FBI official nominally in charge of the Clinton email investigation. We already told you how he admitted to us under oath in writing that they found Clinton emails in the Obama White House Executive Office of the President. Again, showing Obama knew. If you want to know why Hillary Clinton wasn't prosecuted, was because it is because the Obama White House was involved in the Clinton email cover-up. To prosecute Hillary Clinton would have been to implicate the President of the United States and people around him. And certainly if you're Hillary Clinton, you'd be like, you want to prosecute me for sending out these emails, running the system the way I was? I was communicating with the president on this system. I'm going to bring him as a witness in in my favor. It wasn't just the the Clinton email scandal. wasn't just the Clinton email scandal. It was a White House scandal. It was a State Department scandal. It was a DOJ scandal. It was an FBI scandal, etc. And we're still getting the testimony. We just had testimony of, uh, who else did we take up? Jake Sullivan. Jake Sullivan was a top official for um, a top Hillary Clinton aide during her tenure at the State Department. I think our lawyers flew up to New Hampshire to question him a few weeks ago. We, rep- we authorized, excuse me, we released the records we released a transcript of the deposition uh, recently. So you can go and look at the transcript. And he admitted that both he and Hillary used unsecured personal emails for official State Department business. So it wasn't just Hillary Clinton doing this, it was other aides in the State Department. Including classified information, obviously. We questioned him about classified information he sent. When I sent this email, he told us, my best judgment was that none of the material in it was classified, and I felt comfortable sending the email on an unclassified system. The material has subsequently been upclassified, but at the time that I sent it, I do not believe that it was classified. Well, material isn't upclassified. It's recognized as classified. You know, there are four and a half million people with national security clearances, and I'm sure many of you are watching right now, and you know exactly what I mean. It's your responsibility, certainly at that senior level, to know what is classified and not classified. And material is classified whether or not it's marked classified. And it's your obligation as a government official or someone with a national security clearance to protect that information and to transmit it over unsecure communications devices uh, or through unsecure communication means is a violation of law. Sullivan said in his deposition he had not been concerned about Clinton's use of a non-governmental email account because it wasn't part of his job. There you go, that's bravery. 
Like Secretary Clinton has said herself, I wish she had used the State Department account. It wasn't really part of my job to be thinking about Secretary Clinton's emails, so I don't think I sort of fell down directly in my job, but I do wish I had thought of it during the time we were at State. Of course, I mean, what human being at this point wouldn't have thought of it? So you can read the entire deposition. It's up on our website. I put the video out there for you, but I'm not allowed to because the federal court ruled it's under seal. So the court who granted us the discovery, typically when you get to deposed under oath, uh, many deponents are, are videotaped. And certainly in a case like this, it's the ordinary course. But the Justice Department, this Justice Department and this State Department came in and asked the judge to make sure these videotapes aren't released publicly. And we opposed that, but the court denied, unfortunately, the um, release of the videos for now, but left the door open for reconsideration. He said, the court does not foreclose future releases of audiovisual recordings in this or other cases. Judicial Watch may move to unseal portions of these recordings relied upon in future court filings. So, too, may it use the video recordings at trial consistent with the federal rules of evidence. So maybe this material will become publicly available via video, but in the meantime, you can gain access to this information on our website, the transcript available at the Judicial Watch website. You know, it's not just um, Clinton emails that we're doing all the work on. It's not even just the deep state we're doing all the work on. But there are other issues we're investigating as well. We have a new lawsuit uh, on human fetal tissue research. So the brave new world category of government corruption. They're using human fetal tissue in humanized mice testing. So they're taking uh, aborted bar, uh, the aborted parts of babies, unborn human beings, and inserting them into mice with your tax dollars. The FDA on July 15, 2018, during the Trump administration... I don't know who was running the FDA at the time, signed a contract to require human fetal tissue to transplant into, quote, humanized mice so that the mice would have a human immune system. Trump administration, thankfully, in September 2018, halted the FDA's contract with Advanced Biosciences Resources, ABR, which sold fetal tissue it obtained from abortion clinics to the FDA for use in animal testing. Additionally, HHS said in a statement, that it was conducting an audit of this barbaric practice. So we want the details here. And uh, why was this agreement signed? Who signed it? What was involved in it? So we want the contracts and related, related records. We want the money spent. What the guidelines are in terms of handling this human fetal tissue. I don't know how you feel about abortion one way or another. I'm pro-life. But I probably think it ought to be concerning to everyone on both sides of the issue about the handling of human fetal tissue and whether or not um, abortion is being used as a vehicle to get human fetal tissue for scientific experimentation. I mean, I, you know, look, in, there's, you've got these... Planned Parent, these Planned Parenthood issues as well, where they were caught on videotapes talking about selling aborted tissue. Quote, selling, I put in quotation marks. 
according to the documents that are out there already, ABR paid abortion clinics $60 per single aborted fetus and sold the body parts to researchers at fees at $325 per specimen. So it's a pretty good markup. Brain, eyes, liver, thymus, and lungs, these are all human tissue parts. I don't understand why we're even involved in this as a government. It's offensive tax dollar-wise, and that's why we're doing the investigation. Another major issue is this terrible rise in anti-Semitism here in the United States, targeting Israel specifically. Uh, The left has always hated Israel, just like they hate America. Of course, not all leftists hate Israel. Not all leftists hate America. Too many leftists hate America, and too many leftists hate Israel. The reason they hate Israel is because, like America, we stand against the transnational order and for freedom. Against the transnational deep state, if you want to put it more directly. Against the socialist efforts. Against revolution. Communist revolution. The destruction of democracy. You know, basic basic Western values like that. And our erstwhile uh, ally... Qatar, Q-A-T-I-R, I pronounce it Qatar, is um, funding Texas A&M, a public university. And why is that concerning? Because Qatar is part of this Islamist revolution. At least he's supportive of it. I love the, the you know, because these, these, uh, these totalitarians in the Middle East, they're all in favor of revolution, as long as it's not in their country. So they're funding radical Islamists all over the world, terrorists, you name it. Every bad guy, every bad actor you can think of is, uh, has gotten boatloads of money from the oil-rich country of Qatar. And, uh, and of course, it's at odds with the United States and Israel on Middle Eastern matters. And we're representing a group called the Zakor Legal Institute, and uh, Zakor, Leader, Zakor Legal Institute, and they've been pursuing information from Texas A&M about, uh, you know, t- tell us about how it is you managed to take money from this government entity abroad uh, and open up a Texas A&M campus in Qatar or Gutter. Nine hundred degrees awarded in Qatar by Texas A&M University since two thousand seven, and so we're asking for these basic records, or our client has been asking. We filed a technically a motion to a petition to intervene. It's kind of an odd issue. Uh, the Texas Public Information Act requires a lot of legal somersaults to get um, uh, to, to get documents. And we're fighting essentially the government of Qatar because they, or quote, their foundation, which is really a front for the government. The university claims the records can be kept from the public because disclosure would reveal confidential donor information. 
And of course, we point out that the law only protects private donors, not donations from a former government body, a, a foreign government body, namely the Gutter Foundation. It was created by the Emir of Qatar, is chaired by his consort, and is sponsored and supported by the government of Qatar, a monarchy. At no point did the Qatar Foundation demonstrate it is not an agency or subdivision of the government of Qatar. So this isn't like Mr. or Mrs. Smith sending a donation to Texas A&M and saying, you can't get that information, it's private. This is a government entity funding a public university, and they're trying to hide it from our client. The details about that. And we want to know how this foreign government lassoed Texas A&M University into setting up this campus in Gutter, which, of course, does a lot to help Gutter make itself look like a sane country as it's supporting radical terrorism abroad and anti-Israel jihad. Our client said, we are grateful for the assistance, Mark Greendoffer. Uh, We're grateful to help him. We're grateful for the assistance of Judicial Watch and intervening on our behalf. We were surprised that the Gutter Foundation sought to suppress the production of information that is required to be reported under federal law and look forward to finally receiving documents from Texas A&M so we can continue our work researching the influence of malign foreign actors on foreign campuses. I mean, if you think Qatar is only funding or dealing with Texas A&M, oh no, it's much broader than that. And I encourage you to look it up. So here we have it. I mean, we're fighting the State Department, the Justice Department, the CIA, the Defense Department, and on behalf of our friends at the Zachary Leader Legal Institute, we're fighting the government of Qatar in Texas to get information for you, the American people, to see how your public universities are being manipulated by a hostile foreign entity to advance their interests as opposed to our interests. It's a great work we're doing. I'm, I'm proud of our lawyers for pursuing this litigation, which, as I say, is quite requires a lot of legal expertise to pursue. And um, with that, I encourage you to go to our website at judicialwatch.org. Look up everything I'm talking about. I talked a lot about a lot of things tonight. And get the word out. Because you won't find out anything that you, you won't find um, much of anything you hear today will be repeated anywhere else on the media or even on the internet. We're your source for deep state truths, news, and the best hope, frankly, here right now in D.C. for effectively draining the swamp. So with that, I wish you a wonderful weekend. I wish you all a happy Mother's Day as well, those of you celebrating Mother's Day. And I'll see you next time here on Judicial Watch's Weekly Update. You have just listened to Tom Fitton's Weekly Update on JW TalkNet. Remember to subscribe and donate at judicialwatch.org slash donate.